It's Tuesday, and you know what that means. It's a new episode with the Murder Bucket Podcast. Good evening, Murder Bucket family, and welcome back to Tuesday. We are still in our Last Supper series, and tonight we are continuing with part two, discussing William Bonin, the Freeway Killer. Before we get started, let's quickly do our week slash weekend recap. Only a few things happened since the last time that we talked. One of my very best friends, Shelby, celebrated her 30th birthday, and our mutual friend, Sierra, threw her a big birthday party, so we all went over to Sierra's house, had food, played a few games, played darts, and just celebrated death to Shelby's 20s. And the reason why we didn't have an episode last week is for my birthday that is coming up next week, I asked my husband for a new tattoo. So several years ago, about 10 years ago now, when my husband was in the military, he was deployed to Afghanistan. Of course, I was sad and lonely and he was bored and lonely because of course there's really nothing to do when you're not working out there. So he decided to come up with this really goofy story about meeting an invisible land whale in the desert. Yes, you heard that correctly, an invisible land whale. So for the past 10 years, we have had this inside joke. And anytime I see anything whale related, I will buy it for him. When our daughter was born, her whole bathroom was decked out in whale stuff. And it's just been this goofy running joke for so long. And we've always talked about getting matching whale tattoos, and we finally did it. So last Tuesday, I got my whale, and then tonight my husband got his. And I got mine on my left arm, he got his on his right arm, so when we stand side by side, they're right next to each other. Then we also have this song that we really love called I'm All Yorn by Tyler Childers. My husband got the I'm All Yorn part, and I got the You're All Mine part. So it finishes the lyric. Super cute. That's technically our third matching tattoo that we have. The first one that we got was the GPS coordinates to the place that we stood when we got married. And then several years ago, our church had a slogan for about a year that was, It's always 330, meaning John 330, he is greater than I. So we both got the he is greater than I symbol with the 330 at the bottom. And now this is our third tattoo that's matching. And that's pretty much all that's significant that's happened in the last two weeks since the last time we had an episode. We're going to continue part two in the Last Supper series with William Bonin and discuss the remaining murders, police surveillance, his arrest, confession, and more. On August 20th, 1979, William picked up 18-year-old Robert Weierstech. Robert was riding his bike to a grocery store when William offered him money to perform oral sex. He was bound and sexually assaulted at knife point before being driven back to Vernon's home. While on the way to Vernon's home, Robert was beaten and tortured. He was bludgeoned with a tire iron and strangled. His body was left alongside Interstate 10 and was not discovered until September 27, 1979. A week later, on August 27, 1979, Vernon and William abducted 15-year-old Donald Hyden. They offered him money to perform sexual services. When he got in the van, Vernon immediately began to sexually assault him. When Donald became frantic, this made Vernon very angry, so he beat him and tied him up. 
He then tortured him and sodomized him. Vernon then strangled Donald and dumped his body near a construction site near the Ventura Freeway. His body was discovered several hours later. When an autopsy was performed, the medical examiner noted that he had extensive bruising to the face, stab wounds in his neck and genitalia. Attempts were made to remove his testicles and slash his throat. On September 9, 1979, William encountered 17-year-old David Murillo riding his bike to a local movie theater. He coaxed David into his van by offering him money for sex, but David refused. William was able to force him into the van and bound him before driving to Vernon's home. William then forced him to perform oral sex and sodomized him. Vernon then took over and also forced him to perform oral sex and then beat him. On the way to Vernon's home, they stopped in a secluded area, bound him, sexually assaulted him, and bludgeoned him with a tire iron on the chest, neck, and skull. They then strangled him and threw his naked body over an embankment alongside Highway 101. His body wasn't discovered until September 12, 1979. Several articles state that William did not abduct or kill anyone again until November 1, 1979, when he and Vernon abducted an unidentified man. The victim was beaten, strangled, and dumped alongside State Route 99. Almost a month later, on November 30, 1979, William abducted 17-year-old Frank Fox. William strangled Frank, killing him. He then sodomized him. His body was found two days later alongside the Ortega Highway. Autopsy report states that they discovered blunt force trauma to his face and head with ligature marks on his wrists and ankles. William then abducted 15-year-old John Kilpatrick by offering him money for sexual services on December 9, 1979. He forced him to perform oral sex and after this, he was bound and sexually assaulted. On the way back to his parents' home, he was whipped so extensively that he cried and screamed for them to stop. This forced William to strangle him. His body was then discarded and not found until December 13, 1979. He was not officially identified until August 5, 1980 because he was not reported missing until February of 1980. On January 1, 1980, William met 16-year-old Francis McDonald near the Chino Airport. William offered him drugs in exchange for oral sex. At first, he wasn't willing, so William threatened him at knife point. He then beat him into submission and forced him to perform oral sex before sexually assaulting him. He was then beaten to death and his body was dumped near Highway 71, but he wasn't discovered or identified until March 24, 1980. On February 3, 1980, William invited a 16-year-old boy to his home to perform sexual favors. After using the restroom, he walked into the living room to the teenager stealing money from him. This made William very angry, which resulted in him killing the boy. Later that evening, William met up with Gregory Miley and they met 15-year-old Charles Miranda, who was hitchhiking along the Santa Monica Boulevard. According to several articles, William and Charles had consensual sex in the back of the van while Gregory drove. After this, William began to yell that the boy had to die. Gregory tried to talk him out of it, but William wasn't backing down. 
Instead, William began sexually assaulting him. William and Gregory then began to beat him with a tire iron and strangled him with a t-shirt. They dumped his naked body alongside East 2nd Street in Los Angeles. Only a few hours later, William found 12-year-old James McCabe standing at a bus stop. William lured him into his van by promising that he would drive him to his destination of Disneyland and give him drugs. Instead of going to Disneyland, William drove to a grocery store parking lot and bound James, telling him that he had been kidnapped for ransom. He was punched in the stomach, mouth, and legs in an attempt to stop him from crying and screaming for help. Gregory then began driving the van while William sexually assaulted James. He was then bludgeoned with a tire iron until he was unconscious. When James woke up, both William and Gregory began to beat him until he was unconscious again. They then strangled him with a t-shirt before dumping his body near a dumpster at a construction site in Walnut City. His body was found three days later. A day after the murder of Charles and James, William was arrested for violating his parole. He was in jail until March 4, 1980. Ten days after getting out of jail, William abducted 18-year-old Ronald Gatlin on March 14, 1980. After sexually assaulting him, he stabbed him repeatedly in the face with an ice pick. He was then beaten, sodomized, and strangled. He was then bound and left behind an industrial building. On March 21, 1980, William offered 14-year-old Glenn Barker a ride. He was beaten and sexually assaulted and then strangled. On the same day, William abducted 15-year-old Russell Ruff from a bus stop in Garden Grove. He was bound, beaten, and strangled. Autopsy of his body indicates that he was held captive for more than eight hours. Both Glenn and Russell's bodies were found on March 23, 1980 in Cleveland National Forest. Sometime in March, William offered 17-year-old William Ray Pugh a ride home as the pair left a mutual friend's house. For the purpose of this episode, we are going to refer to him as Ray. William asked Ray if he would be interested in engaging in sex. Ray panicked and attempted to leave the van. Instead, he was dragged back into the van, and because of this, William got very angry and told Ray that he had found it enjoyable to abduct young men. He then went on to ask Ray if he would be interested in killing someone with him. For whatever reason, William drove Ray back to the residence he claimed he lived in. On March 25, 1980, William and Ray abducted 15-year-old Harry Turner. They lured him into the van by offering him $20 for sex. They then bound and sodomized him. William then ordered Ray to beat Harry. Ray agreed and began to bludgeon and beat Harry with a tire iron. William then joined in and strangled him. They discarded his body near a delivery door of a Los Angeles business. Of course, every single abduction, murder, and body that was discovered was all over the news. The police had a reward totaling $50,000 for any information that led to the conviction of the person or persons who were involved. Because of this media attention, William began collecting all the newspaper clippings and avidly following all the radio and TV coverage. Investigators from several jurisdictions made the connection that all of these murders were linked in some way that they began sharing information. 
They realized that whoever was behind this was striking at a rate of once every two weeks in just the spring of 1980. A task force was formed that was dedicated to apprehending the suspect or suspects. In May of 1980, Ray was arrested for car theft and sent to the Los Padrinas Juvenile Courthouse. He started overhearing the details of the ongoing murders on local radio stations and decided to tell his counselor that he knew who was involved in the murders. The counselor then reported this information to the police, who then told the LAPD. Homicide Sergeant John St. John came to the juvenile courthouse and interviewed Ray. During this interview, Sergeant St. John had a pretty good idea of who the freeway killer was. William, however, had no idea what Ray had told the police, but while he was locked up, he decided to invite 18-year-old James Monroe to live with him. The only catch was he had to have sex with William. They began a consensual sexual relationship, and a month later, after William took James out skating, he informed him that he wanted James to abduct, sexually assault, and murder a teenage hitchhiker. After Sergeant St. John discovered that William might be the freeway killer, he began to look into his background. This revealed his extensive history of sexually assaulting teenage boys. This made Sergeant St. John assign a surveillance team to monitor William's every movement. William and James encountered 18-year-old Stephen Wells on June 2, 1980. They talked him into getting in the van and engaging in consensual sex with both men. They drove home and convinced him to let them bind him with a clothesline. He let them because he was told that he was going to receive $200 if he cooperated. Before he was tied up, James walked into the room and Stephen got suspicious. He tried to escape, but William and James caught him in the hallway and began to beat him while he pleaded for his life. They then strangled him with a t-shirt. His body was then put in a cardboard box and put in the van. William and James then drove to Vernon's apartment and told him that he was in fact the freeway killer that has been all over the news. All three men then went outside to the van to view Stephen's body, and it is stated in several articles that Vernon states, Oh, you got another one. Good job, Billy. You really did a good one. William then asked Vernon where would be a good place to dispose of Stephen's body, and it was recommended to do so behind a nearby gas station. His body was wedged between a chain leak fence and a truck. His body was discovered five hours later by two brothers who were parked nearby to fix a flat tire. Later that night, William and James returned home and watched the news coverage of the discovery of Stephen's body. For nine days straight, nothing of interest happened while the police were surveilling William's every movement. That was until they followed him on June 11, 1980, and watched him attempt to lure five different teenagers into his van before successfully getting one to get in. The police followed him to a service station close to the Hollywood freeway. They heard muffled screams and banging coming from the van, so several officers forced their way in. They discovered William sexually assaulting 17-year-old Harold Tate, who was handcuffed and bound. William was arrested and at first charged with sexually assaulting a minor, and also held on suspicion of the murder of Charles Miranda. William's girlfriend informed his boss that he had been arrested and that his arrest was in connection to the freeway killer case. 
This caused James to become frantic and flee to Michigan where he stayed until he was arrested. While in custody, police did an extensive search of Williams' van where they found various restraining devices such as nylon cords, knives, a tire iron, pliers, and a wire coat hanger. In the glove box, they discovered a scrapbook of the newspaper clippings related to all the murders. The forensic experts found traces of blood in the vehicle and at his home. During questioning, Williams stated that he was innocent at first, but then confessed to Sergeant St. John after reading a letter from the mother of one of his victims. In this letter, she begged him to tell someone the whereabouts of her son's body. He told police that the only way that he would give up the location of where he was buried is if he could get a hamburger. William ended up confessing to abducting, raping, and killing 21 men and boys over the course of several days of questioning. Sergeant St. John stated that he expressed no remorse for his actions, but seemed slightly embarrassed about getting caught. William then stated who his primary accomplices were, Vernon Butts, Gregory Miley, and James Monroe. William was linked to many of the murders by blood and semen stains that were found in his van and in his home. Some murders were linked to him by the green carpet fibers found on several of the victims. These fibers were an exact match for the carpet in his van. Three victims were linked to him by hair that was found on them that matched William's DNA. Six other victims were linked to him by the strangulation method he used. This was later referred to as his signature or trademark. William was formally arraigned for the murders of Marcus Grabs on July 25th, but by July 29th, he had been charged with 15 additional murders. In addition to the 16 murder charges, he was also charged with 11 counts of robbery, one count of sodomy, and one count of mayhem. He was held without bond. By August 8, 1980, all charges were formally submitted against William. He was appointed legal representation and his attorney was Earl Hansen. A search warrant was then issued to allow the police to search Vernon Butts' Lakewood home. During their search, they found evidence that linked him to several murders, so Vernon was arrested and brought before a municipal court on July 29, 1980. He was charged with accompanying William on six murders, as well as three counts of robbery. A statement that was issued by the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department stated this, William and Vernon are believed to be responsible for the kidnapping, torture, and murder of at least 21 young males between May 1979 and June 1980. Five additional murder charges would likely be filed against both men in Orange County soon. Vernon obviously denied everything, but soon confessed to accompanying William for each murder he had been charged with. He also confessed to participating in sexually abusing several of the victims and the torture of one. He was brought before a judge in Orange County on November 14, 1980, and charged with three more murders, and his trial date was scheduled for July 27, 1981. On July 31, 1980, James Monroe was arrested in his hometown of Port Huron, Michigan, and extradited back to California. He was charged with the murder of Stephen Wells. He pleaded not guilty to all charges on August 14, 1980. 
On August 22, 1980, Gregory Miley was arrested in Texas and extradited back to California, where he was charged with the murder of Charles Miranda and James McCabe. He pleaded not guilty to two charges of first-degree murder on December 18th, but then later pleaded guilty at two different pretrial hearings in May of 1981. During a preliminary hearing on January 2, 1981, William pleaded not guilty to 14 first-degree murder charges and numerous counts of sodomy, robbery, and mayhem before a Los Angeles County Superior Court Judge Julius Letham. He was ordered to return to court on January 7, 1981 for pretrial motions and for the formal setting of a trial date. Vernon Butts was arraigned on five counts of murder in addition to three counts of robbery on January 2, 1981. His formal plea hearing was delayed until January 7, 1981. On January 3, 1981, Vernon Butts was found hanging from a towel in his cell. He had committed suicide. According to the autopsy reports, Vernon had attempted to kill himself four other times prior to his arrest. It was believed that his depression was magnified by the release of his testimony at the preliminary hearings. In these testimonies, Vernon graphically described the torture he inflicted on each victim before they were murdered. At the time of his suicide, he had not agreed to any plea bargain or to testify against William. He was looking at life in prison without the possibility of parole. Both Gregory and James agreed to testify against William at his impending trials in exchange for being spared the death penalty, with Deputy District Attorney Sterling Norris also agreeing to seek the dismissal of additional charges of sodomy and robbery that were filed against James if he honored his agreement to testify. In the case of Gregory, District Attorney Norris agreed to accept two separate pleas of guilty to first-degree murder in exchange for two concurrent sentences of life in prison, with a possibility of parole after 25 years, if Gregory agreed to testify against Bonin at both upcoming trials. William Pugh also agreed to testify, having pled guilty to one count of voluntary manslaughter for which he later received six years in prison. And that is where we're going to conclude tonight's episode. Come back in two weeks as we have part three of the William Bonin Last Supper series episode, where we are going to discuss his trial, the aftermath, of course his Last Supper, and his execution. Before you go, please take a moment to listen to this promo from my friends at Capes on the Couch as they discuss comic books and mental health. Hello, I'm Anthony. And I'm Dr. Issues. And we're the hosts of Capes on the Couch, the podcast where comics get counseling. Superheroes don't always get to go home happy. That's where we come in. We offer psychiatric and mental health evaluation of comic book characters. We also chat with some of your favorite creators. Al Ewing. Erica Schultz. Gail Simone. Philip Kennedy Johnson. Chris Claremont. About their work on comics. So check out all our episodes at capesonthecouch.com and follow us at Capes on the Couch on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Hashtag Because Comics. I hope you enjoyed tonight's episode. Be sure to follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.